May 1st, 2010. VGN Radio presents Kevin's Oblast Radio with your host, Kevin Baird. Tonight's topics, Iran's nuclear capacity, World War II continued Holocaust deniers, insurance GPS, localization, immigration reform, and our letter bag. Or I should say my letter bag, since there's nobody else on the show tonight. There's no guests. I am working on a couple of things. I've got uh, a guest from, I don't want to say anybody's names yet, because I don't know if people want to use uh, an alias or their real name, but I have one gentleman who uh, um, is, I'm looking to get on the show, who uh, lived in Japan, is Japanese, and whose um, father or grandfather, I believe it was his grandfather, um, served in the Japanese army during World War II. So uh, he's going to be hopefully joining us in the uh, future on one of the Oblast shows. Um, if you want to be a guest on Oblast, I have had some people write into the show. Um, you know, uh, basically, if you know, you're uh, interested in um, coming on and talking about your um, employment or a topic that's uh, interesting to you, um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, uh, send me an email. And uh, we'll talk about it and figure out, you know, if you'd, you'd make a good guest and uh, we'd get you on the Oblast show. Uh, you can send an email to me uh, for that or just ask a question in an email or talk about any of the topics that we talk about during the show. Send it to um, kbaird, that's K-B-A-I-R-D, at vgn.us. That's kbaird at vgn.us. And, um, yeah, I'll read your email on the air, and or if you want to be a guest, you know, I won't read that part on the air, hopefully, unless I screw it up, and, you know, we'll talk about it. Um, so, I'm going to pause the show for a second. Okay, in usual fashion, what I do is I uh, read the emails uh, to the show before I get to the topics, that way I don't uh, miss anyone's emails, um, you know, if we're running out of time to do the show. I try to keep the show under an hour. When we have guests, it tends to go a little bit longer. But when I do the show solo, I do my best to try to keep the show under an hour. Uh, so let's uh, start. This is from Dan. He just write, wrote in and said, Just wanted to let you guys know that I love the show. I listened to my first one last week, and finally there's a show that I can relate to. Thanks, so keep up the great work, Dan. P.S. Also, I'm a radio DJ, so if you ever need any help with anything audio-related in terms of music editing or adding bits to the show, I'd be happy to help. Thanks, Dan. That's really cool. Um... I'm not a radio DJ, and I don't really know anything about um, doing any kind of audio work outside of what I do for the show. Um, I do take user submissions, you know, if anybody ever has any good ideas, that's cool. I don't do a lot of editing on the show, though, because, uh, you know, we, we've been putting the shows together for almost six years now. It'll be six years in July, and, um, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's like added work, and my thought process goes, you know, most people would rather that I just get the shows out as soon as possible and not um, screw around with them too much by trying to, like, you know, make them neato and cool and put a bunch of effects in there and stuff, uh, you know, laser noises, uh, none of that. Uh, you know, most people just want to hear the shows as, you know, as quickly as possible. But I, I do think that there, um, there should be a sort of like an intro and an outro section to the shows, which I've never done. The reason is, is because I think that if you're a new listener to the show and you come out, you know, you have no idea, you know, what this show or the other shows are about, um, and it's your first time listening, you, you feel a little lost. You don't, you don't necessarily get, uh, you know, what it is we're trying to do. And so, um, you know, I often feel like that there ought to be sort of like an entryway, like a, like a, like a greeting or, or a, 
or something that just sort of said, you know, not just the, you know, welcome to the show, what we, you know, Undead from Cleveland and all that, but um, something that actually explains, uh, you know, quickly um, <clears throat> what the show is all about. And that way, um, you know, people can feel more comfortable uh, understanding that it's not just, uh, you know, I think a lot of times people will listen and think, you know, that we're just a bunch of 20 year olds or something doing a show and they don't realize that, you know, uh, we're all almost 40 years old, you know, and we do, and, and we're not doing this out of like a college dorm, you know, we've been doing this for six years, so, um, the, you know, it, it's one of those things that I, I just like to convey to people that, you know, um, if you stick with the shows, you know, if, if you are, if this is your first time listening, uh, stick with the shows, and you um, will uh, grow to appreciate them more, and, and, you know, because I think, like, the audience is a big portion of what we do, and, and um, you know, it's a lot of back and forth between people that write in, people that participate in the forums, you know, Facebook comments, uh, emails, um, people that call into the show when we take callers, that kind of thing. It, it, it Everybody's a, a part of this, and I, I think that's what really helps the kind of the shows to grow. Um, if you are a first-time listener, if you want to find out more information about how to get this show, as well as the other shows we do, which is Video Game News Radio, Midwest Wasteland, uh, Cleveland Sports Radio, My Take Radio, Born Stubborn Radio... Um, and tumble in with tumbleweed. You can go to videogamenews.com, and the first post on the front page. If you click on that, it lists off a whole bunch of information about how to get the shows, emails to the hosts, and that sort of thing. Um, so check it out, and you know that way you can subscribe um, to the other shows and get everything that you want. That's videogamenews.com. That's the original show, and uh, all the other shows. You can find all the information in there. Okay. This one comes from uh, Matt, and he writes in and says, Hey, Kev, great show as always last week, but I would recommend not spending half of it reading over old emails. Yeah, well, you know, um, we got a lot of emails over the, you know, because I hadn't done a show in a while, so um, luckily this, this week there's not as many. Uh, thanks for answering my emails thoroughly, but I think you got the wrong end of the stick. I never or will ever cheat on my girlfriend. I didn't chat girls up, just be close friends with them, probably a bit more than I should have, and so I said the wrong thing on a few occasions, but nothing to do with trying it out with them or anything. I was a dick, so I've stopped at all that. Now we're good, and I can be fully trusted. Coming up on our anniversary on the 17th, you were right when you said you shouldn't string girls along. Thanks a lot for your help, man. By the way, I'd love to be on a show with you sometime to talk tech and history if you'll have me. Let me know, thanks. Hey, more than welcome, Matt. Um, uh, you know, I'll uh, try and remember to send you an email. But if I forget, you know, feel free to nag me about it again, and we'll set something up. Um, yeah, as far as the, um, the you know the stringing girls along thing, you know I, I do admit that I kind of went on some kind of crazy tangent um, uh, a few weeks back about all of you know about that topic, and um, I think some people saw it more or less uh, sort of doom and gloomish, and um, <clears throat> you know like you're gonna get married and, and die old and be unhappy or something, but um, it wasn't my actual intention. My 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 point was when I was saying all that more or less was to. Um, illustrate that if you get into a relationship for the wrong reasons then um what happens is is you know a lot of people lie to themselves and they say you know well you know we're gonna we're gonna try and raise this kid you know even though they they didn't they don't even know each other very long and now she's pregnant oh we're gonna get married and and we're gonna raise a family that shit never fucking works man it, it rare that it works i've actually no relationships that has worked so i'm not gonna say it never works but um it, it's rare most of the time it ends really bad and um and then there's situations where people um you know they just um uh stay with someone for a, a variety of reasons and and it, you know or they or, and, and they cheat and they and they do things you know on the side and you know 
they try and, and have it both ways, you know, have the good relationship at home and, and have it bad. And my point was is that if you go into something, um, you know, I, I think a lot of times I have a lot of friends who um, aren't uh, very good at um, dating, basically. And if that's not obvious from listening to the show, but um, no, the... Um, and, and what happens is, is when these guys actually find themselves a girlfriend, they, um, they become fearful of losing that relationship because they feel as though they're never going to have another one. And so they get really involved in it. Like they, get, they, they sink a, a shitload of time into it trying to make it work, you know. And from the outside, when you're looking at a relationship like that, you're, all, you're sitting there and you're going, and I'm sure you guys, you know, have had friends like this, but you sit on the outside and you go, this relationship is fucked up. I mean, why are you guys even together? She seems like a bitch and you're doing all this crap or, or vice versa. You know, he's an asshole. Why are you with him? And, uh, it, it, and they sit there and they go, well, I don't know, you know. But, but what it comes down to is they're fearful. They're afraid of um, getting into a situation where they're with somebody that, uh, you know, where they're, they're alone. And, and, and people don't want to be like that. So, um, you know, they'll never find somebody again. They don't want to go through, you know, as, as much as dating sounds like it's all fun stuff, it seems like most people just fucking absolutely hate it, you know? They fucking hate it. And they completely don't want to fucking deal with the stress and the um, the, the rejection and the, the lonely nights and all this sort of stuff. And I, I understand completely, you know, I've been there, but... Um, you, you know, a lot of times, though, you're trying to make a relationship work that's disaster. And, you know, you at some point you have to just sort of stop and realize that, you know, maybe you would be better off um, cutting ties and starting over because, you know, the thing you're doing here is like, are you happy? And that's the question you always have to ask yourself. You know, are you happy where you're at? You know, with what you're in right now, are you happy? Because if you're happy, great. But if you're not, if you're not happy with what you're at, don't sit there and try to come up with bullshit plans that, you know, well, maybe it'll work if I just, you know, paint the house or something. I don't know. And, you know, she'll like me more or something. Or she won't go out and screw that other guy anymore if I'm just more acceptant of her ways and she's unusual or something. No. You know, it's completely um, time to just look at yourself and say, uh... It, it's time to break it off. And if you remember our marriage episode on Midwest Wasteland where, you know, we talked uh, about that, you know, Larry, Don, Don, you know, they all agreed that, you know, the, the breaking point when, when they got their divorces was essentially, you know, what is best for, for me? What is best for my intentions? And, and um, you know, that's when they eventually came to that realization that it was time to, to end their marriages. And I think the reality is, is that a lot of people, including those guys, take a long time before they actually reach that point. And um, a lot of times it's not because of something they did. It's their partner saying, I've had enough of you, get out! You know, and uh, that's where they end up. Okay, I won't spend any more time on that. But that's where I was, that's where I was going. So if, you, you know, if you're a cool man, you got your shit together, you're, uh, you're making it great. Come on the show, we'll talk more about it. And... Okay, I don't know where that stupid button is with the um okay I gotta pause the show because I lost the email hold on okay sorry about that that was a little weird there they um I clicked on the wrong uh folder and then all of a sudden I had like all these uh Amazon ads and stuff and I'm like this isn't the email I don't know where the emails are uh this one actually comes from JP son of Nick 
the old digital ghost. Hey, Kevin, it's me, JP, son of Nick, also known as Digital Ghost. I wanted to touch on the World War II subject about Russia. I've always known that Russia had higher casualties, but never knew that they were the deciding factor in the war. Anyway, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the future of computer technology. Also, do you think that humankind will ever be able to make advancements in robot technology and essentially transfer our brain function power to some sort of memory device that is stored in said robot and, in theory, live forever? The reason I ask this is because an episode of Outer Limits that I saw called Simon Says showed something like this when a father stored his deceased son's brain power into a robot body. Sorry that this email is running too long. Keep up with the good work on Oblast and the other VGN shows. Thanks. Um, yes, if you want my opinion, that is going to happen. However, the way memory and computer chips work today are not compatible with the way our brains work. Our brains basically are built around, um, uh, you know, if you think of like multiprocessor, that's kind of how your brain is. It's got a gazillion processors in it, not just one processor. And uh, it has a, a billion memory cells. And um, the uh, each one is, is um, probably, you know, takes a little part of this and that, whatever you look at, and, and creates this sort of um, um, relative information and then somewhere in your brain is this power of reason that um, deciphers all this information that your that your brain brings in I mean if you know when you when your eye looks out at, at a room or a, or, a, or a scene or when you're driving a car you know there, there's all this information out there there's tons of it you know there's there, there's everything that you're you know in in your um, range of vision and your brain is selecting things to look at and even if you're not looking at something like if you're specifically like hey that girl's pretty cool in the in the corner of your eye your brain's you know still paying attention to how you're driving and it's like brake lights brake lights brake lights and you know and your brain goes oh you know and you, you hit the brakes and so your brain is uh, has this power of reason that um, we do not understand i mean one of the problems that we have you know at, for better or for worse is that uh, we can't really crack open human beings' heads and start experimenting with their brains too often. Um, sometimes, you know, scientists get to do it, but we're, you know, under the uh, guise of, um, oh, we're, we're doing brain surgery, you know, and then they, like, start, you know, shocking the brain with electrodes. Oh, look, this moves his knee. Uh, but in general, they don't, you know, we, we really don't have the ability to um, do that. And uh, the brain is, uh, by and large, a, a very big mystery uh, to modern science. And another reason for that is that there's this thing called the blood-brain barrier. And many chemicals that you can um, get injected into your body or eat or whatever uh, that are f roaming around in your bloodstream do not actually get to your brain unless they um, qualify for, um, uh, you know, however the brain um, allows passage through the blood-brain barrier. So... Um, you know, a lot of stuff might hit your spine. That's, that may be a little bit different, um, you know, in terms of drugs and, and um, uh, narcotics and things like that. You know, things that go directly into your, into your, um, into your brain is, is, isn't, um, is easy. And the reason I, I say that and why that matters is because if we were going to do brain experiments, um, you know, with chemicals and things like that, there's only so many things we can actually use to do that. Um, a lot of other things that, you know, we would use in order to um, uh, learn things about the brain, we can't really do because we can't really get in there and inject things into the brain. We can't stick a needle into your skull and, and you know, deposit something in there. So we're a long ways away from actually understanding how the brain works. Uh, memory is something that is very 
um, mystifying to science. And uh, most of the brain stuff that goes on is uh, theoretical. And, and, I, and, and for real, like when you go and you buy like a, like a chemical, like let's say you um, are an, on antidepressants or you're on Ritalin or you're on um, something that, uh, you know, is, is stimulating your brain. If you actually go to any of these um, you know, websites where they get into the scientific breakdown of um, what's going on, like, you know, what is this chemical actually doing inside my brain? Um, all of it is actually theoretical. Um, it actually says things like we believe that this chemical is reacting um, with, uh, you know, this cell. Um, we we believe that this receptor is uh, uh, connecting to, you know, to this to this um, this whatever protein, and um, they don't really know because they can't really cr- again they can't really crack your head open stick a microscope there and watch the action taking place i mean they can in monkeys and and things like that so they have a pretty good idea what's going on but they can't say for sure and of course that's what you know it breaks down you know sometimes where they find out well they know for instance that you know the 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 one chemical attaches to a protein in a monkey so okay you know they'll do it to humans so we assume it's doing that too but what you don't know is that when it's in a human it's also attaching itself to like um a cell wall or or you know or 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 something and it starts tearing apart your um your veins inside your head then you get an aneurysm and you die and that kind of thing and then they go oops because they, they don't know i mean that's why they have all these um these tests and a lot of times they run these tests on um which a lot of people don't know is they run they run them on uh people who are um essentially comatose um or um uh, almost brain dead essentially um you know if you get um put into like a insane asylum because you're crazy and you become like one of them living vegetable kind of guys you might end up being a candidate for um uh chemical testing uh, and and that's actually unfortunately how we learn about the brain, and so um, the uh, the ability to then take this information that we have and move it into a robot is um, a twofold process because you have to be able to um, not just move the memories that you have, which would be wonderful, um, into uh, you know something that can store all your memories, which would be half of it. Um, you would also, you know, because you'd have to understand memory, but you'd have to have a way to reassemble that information. You would have to have the same processing power um, to take all of that information and and um, allow it to think, to have it, you know, because you could have all of your, like, you could have um, uh, Halo 3 on in memory on a hard drive, but if you don't have the Xbox 360s, you know, um, not to play it, it's not going to work, and you can't just have the processor or the memory chips or the or the or the disk, you know, or the hard drive. You have to have the whole thing, you know, the whole motherboard, the everything, in order to run that game. And the human brain is going to be the same way if it ever moves to something with a machine. You're going to need to have all of the parts in place to basically emulate the human consciousness, and even crazier than that is of course that we're all biological and we're all made up differently and your brain was constructed um a little bit different than my brain you know we all have a slightly different iq we all have different knowledge we all understand things but we also our our brains grew a little bit differently we don't have exact the the exact same minds 
So if they were going to um, emulate your brain, uh, they would actually need to know the entire uh, physiology of what you've got going on. So we would have to have a better way of doing like um, x-rays and knowing like uh, um, how you're constructed, you know, at a very minute and tiny level and how all of these um, chemical reactions and electrical reactions that go on in your head fire off for you. Um, otherwise, uh, if they were to um, try and um, recreate you artificially, artificially, I can't speak, which isn't unusual for me, artificially, um, you would, uh, you know, basically not work right. But at the same time, you know, a, 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 a stopgap to that may be, you know, that at one point if we could um, get memory stored, um, that might be something um, really interesting in the sense that, you know, you could maybe pass that on generation to generation. If there was a way to go through your memories, um, you know, and have that information, um, that that would be very cool. Maybe have a way to lock off things that were very private to you, but... Um, you know, I think if you had, say, Albert Einstein's memories, um, you know, the, the important stuff, you know, his work and things like that, you know, maybe you could see what led him down the road to go from A to B to C and come up with E equals MC squared, that kind of stuff. And, and um, you know, get a deeper understanding of, of different people and, and, and take everything that you've learned in life and um, allow the future generations to, to, to build off of that because it's sort of sad that once you have all this information, you have all this talent, you've learned all this stuff, that you eventually um, die and all of that knowledge that you have, not just the fact that you as a personality, as a soul or whatever, um, have left, but all of this knowledge that you've taken in is now, is now lost forever. And um, so, you know, I think that eventually... If the sun doesn't blow the planet up or we don't kill ourselves from you know, toxic pollution and giant oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico and everything, um, that uh, one day, one day that uh, will be an, um, something that we'll be able to do because um, it's, um, it's something that could be done. But we're a long, long way away from, from never seeing that happen. It won't happen in our lifetime. Do, 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 do. Okay. And... Uh, Mario Ferguson actually wrote in twice, and they're both short. He just wrote in and said, uh, Thanks for having Brian on the show and talking about truck driving. I had no idea that line of work was so grueling and built for a handful of people. Keep up the great work on edutaining us. Yeah. It's, um... They give Brian some credit, though. You know, he does drive up to, like, um, the more, you know, the, the northern part of Michigan, which, you know, when you're looking at the continental United States, it's one of the more snowy, icy areas. It's, you know, Michigan is surrounded by three lakes, so whichever way the wind blows, you're getting snow and ice and everything. So, you know, he does drive through some pretty terrible weather. I mean, we rag on him all the time. I do especially, you know, because he has a drive where he just sits and listens to books on tape and drives his truck. But I imagine that when the weather gets really hairy out there, it's, um, it, it, it's terrible. Also, he writes in and says, Another great show, you guys. Really opened my eyes to the future of gaming consoles and especially downloadable content. I'm going to bed now, and I'm typing this from my phone, so I've got nothing else to add. Keep it up. Thanks, thanks, Mario. It's, uh, you know, when I have Jedi on, it's usually a, a pretty good conversation about next-generation gaming, and I'm sure we'll do that again. Uh, you know, both of us have to um, sort of reset our our thinking caps and wait for things to happen. Probably be a good time right after E3 when we see uh, Project Natal and um, uh, what's Sony's thing called again? I I forgot. Move Sony Move, um, and possibly we'll even see the Nintendo 
um, showing off something new. Although I kind of doubt it. I think Nintendo. I mean, maybe that 3D DS. You know, that might be a good conversation. But I don't think they're going to change the Wii this year. Um, I think the handheld is first, and then Wii HD uh, will follow, but not yet. Okay, that was the email, so that was great. Uh, now let's move on to some topics. Um, I want to talk a little bit uh, World War II. Um, Nutman did write in at one point, and he wanted me to talk about uh, some of the um, Nazis' um, secret projects, as well as possibly some of the Allied and Japanese secret projects that were going on during World War II. Um, that is something I'm going to talk about slowly uh, over um, probably a longer period of time. The thing about World War II is that it's it's a vast um, uh, time that uh, a lot of acceleration in um, technology and events took place, and it's impossible to talk about all of it in one sitting or two sittings or you know, there's whole podcasts out there that do nothing but talk about World War II and, um, you know, cover a lot of the information about it. And what I try and do is more or less um, give you a different insight into um, the way people think about things related to um, World War II as well as other, other things that we talk about on this show and other shows. Um, because I think that you can get most of your standard information out there if you just go out and look for it. And a lot of times I think people don't necessarily know what to look for and uh, you know they may need hints or, or information about that. And um, at, at the same time uh, it helps to have a, a different perspective on what you've always been told your whole life about certain things because you may not have always known, you know, the whole story. You know, maybe what you were taught was correct, but you may have just always thought that the Americans were the winners of World War II because, you know, if you live in America, that's that's what you thought, and you didn't really realize that there these other players were actually involved in the war, you know, and, you know, how big the Russian, you know, since we talked about this before, um, uh, the, the Russian contribution was to the war. And that's one example. Um, but uh, today, anyway, I want to talk a little bit about um, the Holocaust deniers out there. And I want to talk about this because I recently watched something about it. And um, I, uh, I'll just say, you know, from the get-go that I completely think that the Holocaust happened. Okay? It did happen. Uh, and I'm not going to, you know, I, to me it's common sense. It's common sense. It's, it's, it's stupid to even say it didn't happen. Um, but... Uh, I, I I think that there is a, um, a group of people out there that um, deny it, and I think that if you're in a, a camp of thought where you you hear about this and you sit to yourself and you go, well, how can you even think that? You know, that's ridiculous. You know, of course it of course it happened. But um, where where the, where the argument gets interesting is um, basically there's two there's two there's two parts of it. There's, um, you know, was the German uh, high command, essentially Hitler, um, get, did he give an order that said, um, you know, kill all the Jews? Um, and, you know, the other side of that was, was this the plan all along? In that, you know, were these concentration camps built to kill the Jews. And um, the, there's actually, you would think, 
that there's actually a lot of information about this out there. Like you, you would think that you know there's, there's just irrevocable proof, and uh, you'd go out and, and and find all this information. There's probably letters and forms and all this sort of stuff. But in reality, there's actually not that much proof. Um, part of the problem is is that um, the Germans uh, during uh, World War II um, wrote a lot of this in code. Um, let me let me take a step back though. Okay, let me take a step back before we go before we go down that because that's like 1943. Let me let me let me let me step back a little bit and explain um, first of all that nobody on either side in in that argument um, believes that the Jews weren't persecuted. The Jews um, uh, didn't get on uh, tr- trains because they did. Uh, everybody agrees that they did. Um, everybody agrees that they went to these camps. Um, that they starved, that they were prone to disease, that they were stripped of all their belongings, that they were um, often executed, uh, shot, um, uh, you know, left for dead. Uh, You know, um, nobody in this argument disagrees that um, there weren't um, uh, killings of Jews uh, all over Europe during this time. Um, Maybe there's some crazy people. Maybe there's some foaming-at-the-mouse nut jobs who... Um, don't think that happened or something because there's always some people out there. But for the most part, you know, everybody agrees that this is what took place, you know, on both sides of that argument. But the um, the the question becomes, you know, again, was there an effort to take the Jews, put them in the camps, and then exterminate them? Was that the process? That was that the order of the day? And um, there is actually one single document, I believe, I don't know what it's called, um, that is, uh, I, I know I should have done a little bit more homework about this before I started talking about it, since it's such an inflammatory topic, but um, just, you know, I'm just trying to give you some food for thought, and you can look all this information up yourself and, and get more information about it, because there's a lot of information out there, and you definitely want to look at all the information if, you know, you ever want to learn more about the Holocaust, because, you know, I invite you to do that because it was one of the single most important events, if not one of you know the most single most important event that's happened in you know the past hundred years. But um, there's one document that basically you know that Hitler supposedly wrote that um, authorized the, uh, the the killing of the Jews. But um, long before this this took place, um, the Nazi Party basically got together and um, uh, before the final option, which is what it's called, happened, um, they, uh, they, they went to the other countries of the world, and they said, listen, um, and this is, I believe, before the war happened, and uh, they said, you know, listen, guys, uh, we got all these Jews, and, you know, we don't want them. Uh, do you want them? Because we'll give them to you. And, you know, uh, these other countries of the world were like, no, no, we don't want you Jews. We don't want them. And even the United States. The United States had a history of... Um, you know, they had open border, and, you know, you could go over there and be on Ellis Island and everything, get checked out before you ended up, you know, just getting welcomed to the United States. Because at the time, you know, we didn't have a closed border system, so you could go. And even the United States was like, no, we don't want, we don't want the Jews. This is because uh, the Jews were essentially viewed, um, you know, there was a sense of racism going on all over the world at the time. I mean, nobody liked the Jew- Jewish people. And um, uh, there was probably, I mean, I think there, that uh, Jewish people of the time may even mm-hmm. say, you know, that um, they could understand some of that uh, sentiment due to some of the things that they had done at the time. Of course, none of that uh, justifies, uh, you know, killing them or anything like that. But, the, but this, this negative um, sentiment 
that uh, people had against the Jews um, was, uh, you know, um, very real and um, and shared by all the countries of, of the world. And um, it wasn't like um, at the time, you know, the United States or something was like the champions of the Jewish people or something. It was uh, it was um, not until the war had pretty much started that you know they there needed to be a rallying cry for. Um, bringing more people into, you know, recruitment and getting them organized for war and to talk about the evil things that the Nazis did and all that sort of stuff, that they, um, you know, they started to, to, to wave that banner around because before all that happened, I mean, before the war happened, everybody was kind of in cahoots, you know, they were like, no, we don't want you Jews. So the Nazis, um, at, at one point, and this is true, um, had said, well, let's um, take all the Jews, we'll put them on boats, and uh, we'll put them on the island of Madagascar. And uh, that's actually true. And, and and there was a plan for that that was that was proposed, and the, the reality of it though was that the the, the war had, had begun, and uh, the, this is never going to happen. You're just not going to get you know the Jews on the boats and drive them all the way around, and um, you know past England and everything, get them down to Africa and dump them all in Madagascar. I mean, forget about it. That that just for, it's not happening. So, um, what took place then is that the. Um, uh, there's a war effort going on, and the um, Germany uh, had a population of around um, somewhere around 80 million people at the time. And Germany did not mobilize its uh, did not want to mobilize its um, female population. Um, Hitler had a um, policy that women should be getting pregnant for um, to help expand the the Reich, and that uh, women's job was at home take, taking care of the family and, and, and essentially getting pregnant and they would actually mail out um, uh, if you got pregnant you would actually get a, um, a little cross ribbon in the mail a little um, it's a freaking a medal it's, and uh, it would um, be for um, the fact that you uh, um, got pregnant and and you would you would have this and uh, the Germans uh, government sent out medals to freaking everybody, but um, you know everybody got dressed up. But uh, yeah, that was that's what it was. So you had this, um, and then you had uh, a lot of the able-bodied men um, being uh, mobilized um, to go to war. And so you know at the time you still had young kids, which would have been in the um, you know the the Hitler youth, and uh, you had the um, old men and stuff like that, that, uh, you know, basically, you know, they just ignored at the time. They later become like the Volkssturm and everything, but uh, at the time they, um, uh, you know, were just ignored. So y you have this labor force that's it's diminished because you're you're putting it into um, the war and, and, and creating fighting troops out of your, um, your able-bodied men. So the Germans said to themselves, well, we, you know, we need labor and uh, let's, let's take these, these Jews and we'll put them on um, trains and we'll um, take them to uh, work camps, ca concentration camps, work camps. And nobody denies this. Nobody, nobody on either side says this isn't true. Um, this, this, is what, this is what happened. And um, the uh, reality of this is that the, um, it, as much as you, know, you hear about the fact that um, you know, 6 million Jews got killed and everything in, in the war, the um, Jewish population inside the um, the camps actually made up a little less than fifty percent of the population of all of the concentration camps. So um, 
Yeah, the, the, well, a little greater than 50% was actually made up of um, uh, prisoners of war, um, mostly Russian, um, and uh, occupied uh, territory, you know, uh, political prisoners, um, gay people, uh, nomads, whatever. Whatever the Germans could gather together because, uh, you know, they didn't really care. And, um, you know, it, 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 in, in the early days, too, they had a, a situation in which the Germans... Um, you know, when you watch movies and things like that, and, and the Nazis are walking around just like, sh you know, shooting uh, Jews in the head wherever they go, um, that basically, you know, was something that took place, um, you know, if it, you know, if, it, if you can look at that as, you know, authentic, um, it took place in like Poland and the Ukraine and, and, and uh, in Russia. And the thing is, is that um, the Germans follow instructions at, the, at this time uh, very precisely because Germans are very Prussian. There's very um, one, two, three. And uh, everything is, you know, there's a rule and a code and a system and it's all documented. If they shot and killed a Jew, um, uh, they would have it written down. There's actually like a huge list of everybody they shot and killed. Um, and, you know, it's like a general would come up and, 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 and shoot a guy in the head or something, and um, they would be like, write that down, I just shot, you know, Carl Goldberg in the head. And then they would write it down, and it would be in the book. Um, because this, this is just a, this, it's just a very, like, Prussian system. It's just very, um, it's all paperwork and organized and everything, and, and that's just the way it went. But um, because of this, uh, you know, at first they, they had... Um, a lot of controversy that they that they literally had to work out because they you know they basically gave orders that said okay well the Jews um, have to start going to the concentration camps and they're going to start to do you know they're going to start doing work and um, but the German people you know they're they're not going to be they're they're not going to go to these camps the Germans don't go just to these Jews and political prisoners and these exiles and all this other stuff and um, you know people came up to the the high command or whatever and they were like well. Um, well, what if they're Jewish and German? And believe it or not, there was like a whole system developed um, to determine your eligibility to be put on a train or not. Like, they would first, you know, decide, well, if you're um, half German and half Jewish, then, and, you know, if it's on your father's side or whatever, then you can stay. But if it's on your mother's side, then you get on the train, you go, you know, and you've got to come up with this paperwork that proves that, you know, this is your, you know, your lineage, and they would look at it and, and uh, d determine, basically, if you're going to go die... Or if you get to be a German. And uh, this is what was going on in Germany. But if you were in Poland, forget about it. I mean, if your last name just even looked Jewish, you were getting on the train and you were, you know, you were out of there. So you, you end up with these work camps. And there's a whole bunch of them. You know, just, there's just a slew of them all over the place. And they're all basically um, uh, probably building something um, for for the war effort, um, and you know whatever that whatever that could be, you know it could be clothing or or like in Schindler's List, it could be munitions, um, whatever. And so um, you have this. So so now, uh, if you take it uh, from a viewpoint where you have this, you're the um, you're the commandant or whatever of the base. You know, you're in charge of the base that you're on, the, the, the work camp. And this is a pretty, if you're this guy, this is a pretty cushy job because you're not fighting, okay? You're not getting bombed because no one's bombing a, a prisoner camp. 
and uh, you basically have um, unlimited slave labor. So you have, uh, you know, people that are at your beck and call to do whatever you want, anything you say. Build a build a bridge, they build a bridge. You know, fix my car, they fix your car. You know, create this for me or do this. I mean, it's a cushy job. It's, you know, as far as, like, being a, a, a Nazi guard, it's a great job for you because, you know, you're not going to die and uh, you, you have basically everything you want. So um, you, you want to keep that job is my point. If you're in that position and you're in the military during this time, you want to keep that position. So what would happen, though, is that um, uh, the the commandant will be running a camp that's designed for 10,000 10, prisoners. So he has 10,000 prisoners, and he gets a phone call from high command, and the high command basically says, listen, uh, we're going to send you uh, 10,000 uh, more uh, prisoners, um, so you're going to have to take them in. And the guy, the commandant will be like, well, um, we already got 10,000. The camp only holds 10,000. We, we already got 10,000. And high command will be like, well, you're going to get 10,000 more, so you're just going to have to make do. And the high command will be like, well, are you guys going to give us a, you know, larger food um, allotment? And it'll be like, no. You know, it's a 10,000 camp because this is a Prussian system. And so you have a camp that holds 10,000 people. You're going to get 10,000 people food. So if you go out, you know, if, if the high command directs more people to your camp, well, that's too bad because there's no paperwork or adjustment going on. It's one, two, three. You know, you're getting food for 10,000 people. So the commandant of the camp isn't going to sit there and argue about it because, again, he has a, uh, a good job and he's not going to lose it. Because, look, if you, if you were the commandant of the camp and you said, listen, I'm not going to take those 10,000 people, the only thing that's going to happen is, is that the, the, um, the general is going to show up and he's going to be like, you are going to the front on the Russian side, we need a tank driver in the Battle of Kursk, and you're going to go, and you know you're basically going to die, and uh, he's going to put his nephew in charge of the place, and his nephew is just going to take care of it. Now, a lot of times that may have actually happened. I mean, there may have been people in the, especially in the Wehrmacht, that weren't part of the you know the Nazi uh, mindset who may have actually said, no, you know, this is terrible. I can't. I'm not going to do this, and they they remove them, and they put in somebody else who's you know uh, willing to make the necessary adjustments to allow this to take place. So so now, so the commandant says, well, I'm not going to give up my job or anything. So he tells his guys, you know, he tells his staff, and he's like, listen, um, we're going to get 10,000 more guys tomorrow, and uh, you guys are just going to have to make do, you know, have everybody sleep uh, two to a bed and cut the food ration in half. And uh, the guys are like, wow, that's pretty crazy. But, our, you know, okay, we'll do that. You know, and so, you know, uh, you, people are living in cramped conditions, and you got disease and, and dysentery, and and um, you got starvation going on now because people are eating, uh, you know, half of what they were eating before, which wasn't very much, and um, and then you know, so uh, uh, the next you know few days go by, and command calls again, and they're like, uh, "Listen, Fritz, um, we got a, another trainload of uh, ten thousand Romanians coming in, and you're going to have to do something with them." And now you're the commandant, and you're like, "Wow, I don't." I mean, what are we supposed to do? You know, I don't. There's no room for all these people, and this shit actually go. This shit actually happened. Okay, I just want you to know this is not. I'm not making some crazy. This isn't like some what if scenario. This shit actually went down. Okay, and the com the commandants are are dealing with this overpopulation, and they don't get more food. They don't get more um, troops to guard these prisoners, and you have this situation where these um, untenable conditions are getting worse. Uh, you know, you, you already have disease. You already have a lack of um, uh, uh, 
a force to uh, deal with this. So you, your troops are stressed because you, you probably only have 500 guys who were originally there to handle 10,000 people, and now you have 30,000 people, and you're trying to deal with it. And they become more and more um, brutal and uh, angry, and they, and they don't care because um, there's so many people coming in that they have to deal with, and there's, there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. And this eventually goes from like 10,000 to 20,000 to 30,000 to basically 100,000 people in a camp designed for 10,000. And with a food allotment of 10,000. And the, um, this is why, this is why that, uh, uh, you know, not just the, the, the fact that people were being um, stingy and cold and, 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 uh, and everything, but this is why, you know, when you look at these uh, videos of, um, that they, the, the films that they took of um, the Jews, why they were so thin and so skinny. And it wasn't like that the um, allies went into some, uh, warehouse and opened a door and found like all this food everywhere. Like, oh, look at all this food they didn't give to the Jews. They just let them starve. You know, um, the reality was there just wasn't no food. I mean, there just wasn't. I mean, there there wasn't anything there to give to them. Now, high command could have fixed that problem, but they didn't give a shit. So, you know, these people would starve and they would die. Now, you're running the, you're running a camp, and uh, basically you're. You, you're you're dealing with this disease and starvation, and a lot of people that come in are sick anyway. You know, you're 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 an old man. You come off the train, and um, you're 90 years old, and um, you you know you just basically the stress and everything just kills you, and you fall over dead. And then there's other guys that just take a bullet and get shot, and everything else that goes on. So you know, about every hour, you probably have a dead body showing up. And you know, at first, you know, you may have been like, you know, when you only had 10,000 people, you probably had a program or a system set up where you were like, okay, well, we're just going to take them and we're going to put them in a in a grave and and bury them. And um, and then after a while, though, this is like, well, you, you can't even deal with it because there's a guy dying every hour or whatever it is. So you 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 start stacking bodies, which you know, you just you start putting them in a pit, which is what they did. And uh, you, you end up with, like, you know, um, uh, a couple hundred in there. And it starts stinking, and there's flies, and um, eventually the commandant shows up, and he's like, what the fuck is this? You know, what the fuck are you guys doing? And I was like, well, you know, look, man, they're fucking dead, and we don't know what the fuck are we supposed to do with them. You know, they're, they're fucking dying. And I said, well, you can't leave them fucking sitting here, man. This is fucking horrible. And, and they're like, well, you know, we're, we can't fucking, if, you, if, you, if we keep burying them, you know, the, the reality is is that bodies are made up mostly of water. And if you, you put them all together in like a big thing like that, they, um, they start oozing and it gets all nasty. Even if you're buried underground and everything, it just gets to be a really fucking gross ass shit unless you treat it with certain chemicals and stuff. So, you know, they, they, they come and calls high command. High command basically says, well, you got to more burn them. So, you know, this is where they start burning the bodies and everything because they're getting rid of them. And um, now, this is all, neither side disagrees with this, okay? Both sides agree that this shit, this shit happened. What, where the argument comes into play is that, um, was it an order that came down from high command that said, listen, kill these, kill all these Jews, or, you know, was it just the act of individual commanders who couldn't deal with the population crisis that they had in each camp and started to execute them themselves? And then there's the argument, which I'll get to in a second, about how it could have been done or is supposed to have been done. 
Now, um, realistically, okay, a lot of these camps were in um, other countries, uh, Poland especially, and, 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 but there were others. And the Russians are slowly marching west. And the, the command most likely came down from upper command when commandants would be calling and being like, uh, listen, we, you know, we got 100,000 people here. People are starving in the camp. Uh, the men are antsy, and uh, it doesn't look too good for our side during the war. Um, what are we doing with all these people? And so the, um, in, in s some camps didn't kill people, so they would put people on trains and send them to places like Auschwitz and things like that where, you know, this was supposedly done. And um, other, you know, uh, camps did kill people. But um, basically, you know, the, most likely what happened was that the order came in and they said, well, you know, execute them. Or... The other side of that argument is that <clears throat> that order didn't come. That order never came, and rather the people running the camps were like, we need to get rid of some of these people. We're going to execute them. And that argument goes both ways. I don't know what it matters to, my, to me. I mean, to me, it doesn't, you know, people still ended up dead. You know, it doesn't matter to me. It, it was a, a horrific thing. But it actually matters to people who try to understand the demonization of um, the uh, the Nazis at the time, because um, they they feel that this was done in in you know um, that 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 it didn't happen, and that it's being used to demonize the the the, the people for a variety of reasons. Um, I mean, I personally believe it happened because you know. Um, there was people there, they were eyewitnesses to it. I wasn't an eyewitness to it, so there's no way I could ever sit there and say it didn't happen, or anybody else could. You know, and these people were there. Um, and so these people saw it, and they said it happened, so it happened. Uh, you know, that's, that's the long and short of it. Now, one uh, argument, though, that, that takes some... Um, that adds some weight to the denial part, and I sort of understand this argument, though, is that um, everybody has heard that the Nazis gassed the Jews. And the problem with that is that it seems very odd. The reason I say that is because gassing people isn't an easy thing to do. Um, when you gas somebody, it's dangerous, first of all. You're putting in a dangerous chemical into a room that can leak out. Um, this is the 1940s. They didn't have exactly the most, um, uh, you know, greatest um, track record of, of um, building, you know, uh, safe facilities like this that, you know, the gas wouldn't get out and kill all your guards. At the same time, they're building them on these in these camps that are, you know, not hospitals. Or, you know, they're building them in uh, these cement rooms. And, I mean, on TV and in movies, you say, well, I take the gas and we connect it to the shower and it comes out the shower and it gasses everybody and kills them. This is not, this is not a very efficient way to kill people. It's not efficient. It's messy. It's dangerous. And it's, um, it, it doesn't make a lot, of, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Because it, it's easier to shoot people in the head. Or it's easier to hang them. Or it's easier, listen, if you've got a whole camp of a hundred thousand people and you're like well let's we need we got orders 
from high command that we need to kill all these people. You're not going to basically get them all into a room, tell them to take their clothes off, go into a room, get gas, which is dangerous, and then and then exterminate the bodies. This is like, um, this. if it was done, you know, which apparently it was, it's very odd, it's very strange, because it would be quicker to just um, shoot the people, or, um, like, put them all on a barge. You could put 100,000 people on a barge, tow the barge out to the furthest part of the sea, and then sink it. And you would kill all of those people um, rapidly. You wouldn't have to wait for them to get changed. You wouldn't have to wait for them. You wouldn't have to burn the bodies. You wouldn't have to um, uh, worry about anybody like finding out or anything. Uh, you know, maybe they would find the floating bodies or something, but it didn't matter. Um, because it's like you, you could just take them out to some place where, you know... Uh, they wouldn't get to, you know, the middle of the Black Sea or something. And it, this is, um, but anyway, you could take them to a mine shaft and you could just have them all like go into the mine and then seal the mine up and they couldn't get out of the mine. They would all starve to death. And you could probably fit like a million of them in a fucking mine. Um, you could lock them in, you know, to rooms or, but, but, but really seriously, outside of all these creative ways that you could deal with it is that you could just shoot them. And the thing is, people go, oh, bullets are expensive. No, bullets are not fucking expensive. They're not expensive. They're not. They're not expensive back then. They're not expensive. If you're if you're executing somebody with a single bullet um, in, a, in a camp, uh, considering how much... Look at how much ammunition the fucking Taliban have, for crying out loud. Um, you know, it, it, there's so much fucking ammunition in World War II. Everybody had ammunition. It would have been a lot quicker and a lot easier. And this is an argument that kind of... Um, is something that is the crux of the um, denier's whole philosophy, that um, the gassing actually never took place. Um, I think it did happen, and I, the reason I think it did happen is because um, medical science during the time was uh, still in this weird kind of, like, they, they thought things were the way they were, and there wasn't a lot of research, you know, there wasn't these weird university studies that happened. Uh, everybody was an expert on something, and everybody said something, you know, was um, uh, true, and maybe it was. I mean, you know, back then you could get heroin prescribed to you, uh, you know, to treat certain things. People had all kinds of weird, wacky remedies and things like that. And so it's very possible that uh, whichever crazy... Um, uh, doctor at the time was in charge of determining the best way to execute the Jews uh, humanely. Um, probably said that uh, you know um, gas, and will gas them. And you know they they created a um, an, an organizational structure, uh, a Prussian one two three uh, method in order to get this done. Um, I believe that's likely what took place. Um, but my um, but I can understand. I can see the. Um, the 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 confusion though of why that would have ever taken place because it doesn't make any sense it's it's not a good way to go and the um there was a gentleman uh um who uh went to i forget his name it was like uh, lou 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 shot or something um and uh he went to um Germany and actually gathered samples from the walls of all of the supposed gas chambers, and I uh, think out of Auschwitz he did, 
and um, there were chemical tests done, uh, blind tests done at a university, uh, looking for traces of um, cyanide in all of these samples that he collected. And this was some years ago, um, and uh, I think it was during the 80s. And uh, the, the, all the tests came back negative. None of this, you know, and this led, uh, you know, um, a lot of uh, discourse about the whole argument, you know, both ways. And, and more or less uh, a bigger deal um, in England and things like that than it was in the United States. Because um, we're more detached from it, I think, in the United States than they are in England. But um, as well as Germany and the Jewish, you know. Jewish Americans probably knew everything about it, you know, but, you know, your standard Americans never heard too much about this information. And, um, you know, the guy was, you know, called out for being a um, uh, Jew hater and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, maybe, I mean, I don't know. I didn't gather the samples. I didn't grab the stuff. But I'm, I'm just saying this This added more firepower to that whole argument, that the, that the high command never sent down the message that the bases were not designed to gas people. They were just simply set up as work camps that had a morgue, and that the Holocaust then, therefore, never took place. And that is basically just a political term um, to describe what um, really happened, and, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, to, to you and I, and to anybody that's sane, uh, what happened to these people was a Holocaust. I mean, if we were to describe a Holocaust, you know, getting your life, your family, you know, imagine sitting in your house with your whole family there, somebody comes in, says, get up, go outside, and they gather you up, and they put you outside, you leave everything you have behind, they take everything that you ever have had, they put you on um, a train, and they, they, they make you travel to some place where your life is no longer your own, where you basically don't eat, and you work night and day, and uh, until you basically um, die of either disease or murder or, um, or accident. And your, your odds of getting out of that situation um, are very thin un until the war ends. And anybody can look at that and say, that's a Holocaust. I mean, that's what we would describe as, as one. But um, apparently that the, you know... The interpretation or the definition of that word is something that um, people will sit there and say that no Holocaust ever happened. It's not true. Blah blah blah. And we look at it and go, well, how can you even say that? But what that person is saying is that um, it was never something that was ordered. It was never something that was created um, purposely by the um, uh, the Nazis, and that it was a direct result of a mismanagement of. Um, warfare and dealing with so many prisoners. I don't know. I mean, to me, that doesn't even matter. But uh, to some people, it does. I, I think that, um, uh, again, there were people that were there. It seems irrefutable to me. If they said it happened, it happened. Um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like with Schindler's List. You know, all the Schindler's List survivors um, did actually go to Auschwitz. Remember, the women went to Auschwitz. And uh, that was, you know, uh, this is a true story. And, uh, you know, they went to Auschwitz, and they went into the showers, and uh, when they were there, they um, took a shower. And so, you know, that, it makes you sit there and scratch your head and go, you know, what, you know, who was there? But, of course, anybody that was would be dead, you know? Uh, anybody that went in uh, would have died. And, you know, the, it, it's sad. And, and, I don't know. I, I guess what I, you know, I just wanted to 
frame that in your mind, though, to give you an understanding of the, um, the this argument. Because if you ever hear it, um, some of that evidence can be uh, fairly compelling. And I think that you have to also look at the facts that, you know, um, you and I weren't there, and uh, some other people were. And even, you know, the people that found it, you know, American GIs and things, and um, people that weren't Jewish, because greater than 50% of the population weren't Jewish, uh, survived these camps. And, uh, you know, all of these people said these th sorts of things happened. So for everybody involved, you know, it basically was a Holocaust. Okay. Um, I felt that also... Uh, this is where I'm ending that uh, that piece of conversation. But I just wanted to say that I also felt that um, if we're going to continue the World War II conversation, it was necessary to touch on this subject, um, not just the the Holocaust denier part, but the fact that the Holocaust happened. You know what it, what was really going on, um, because uh, you know that's uh, again one of the most singular important events that's ever happened. Uh, and so uh, you know I figure we we talk about that. Now I did have. Uh, 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 Rapier, um, I think it was Rapier, talk about on the show that, um, uh, that last time I had mentioned um, when the Allies had fought in the Pacific side um, that they had won the war basically single-handedly and they did bring up that the Australian forces were um, indeed involved in the Pacific theater and he's absolutely right uh, and I didn't mean to um, say that there weren't other forces, I mean Philippine, Filipino troops also fought, you know, there was a lot of people fighting uh, in the um, uh, the Pacific theater of of the war, and um, a lot of people don't actually know the whole Australian story to the war because the Australians lost over forty thousand men. Um, so, uh, in a future podcast, I'm going to be talking about um, the Australian side of the war and uh, talk a little bit about um, their perspective on it because it is unusual what actually happened to them, and uh, I think it'll be an interesting subject to go over because you know they definitely contributed um, a lot more than a lot of other countries contributed to the war. All right, well, let's see. We're at about an hour. Um, I, I can never get through any of these freaking topics, but I'm going to try and fit one more quick one in. Um, I know we, we try to do a lot of you know technical conversation on this show, and I haven't been able to hit on it too much lately, but uh, I am going to head back there. So if you've been listening to this show for the technical talk, I am going to go back there because um, I do have a lot of subjects uh, about that. But um, Lately, I don't know, man. A lot of this stuff has just been... But part of it, I think, is my fault because I haven't been doing this show um, as quickly as I'd like to. Um, so I'm going to try and get this show in a little bit more um, uh, weekly, or at least bi-weekly, and not take uh, more than that time off so the show can get um, you know more content, more information out there for you. But I want to talk a little bit about Iran's nuclear capacity because a lot of people keep hearing about how Iran is making a nuclear bomb and Iran is going to... Um, you know, get this bomb done, they're almost making a bomb and everything, and um, I wanted to touch on this a little bit. Basically, when you're building a nuclear bomb, okay, um, there's a, there's basically an, an element called uranium, and uranium, uh, you know, it's pulled out of the ground, and out of a mine, and it is, um, contains a heavier element that uh, makes up um, less than one percent of the, um, the 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 uranium itself, and this is uranium two thirty nine. This element of uranium two thirty nine is a little bit heavier than the rest of uranium. And in order to make a nuclear bomb, you need the uranium two thirty nine. You don't need the rest of the uranium. So what um, many countries do that are building nuclear bombs or have nuclear capability is they liquefy the, um, the 
or gas, the, um, they liquefy and then turn into a gas, the uranium. And they put this into a centrifuge. And the centrifuge basically spins, and you know what, what a centrifuge does. And it moves the, um, it separates the, the gases. It moves the heavier um, uranium-239 to the outside, where in, and it tries to keep the, um, the rest of the uranium in the, in, in the middle of the centrifuge. And this is a special bit of science on how this is done. This is something that's not shared. Um, you need expertise in order to understand how to do it. You need somebody who knows what they're doing. You need the right parts. You need the right materials. You need all of the right information to get it done. Well, in order to build anything nuclear, you, you, need, um, you need this uranium-239. And um, basically, uh, you, you need a purity you know, because you can separate the uranium, but it will be impure. And the, um, if it is not of a high enough purity, you cannot make a, um, a nuclear reaction. You cannot get a nu nuclear reaction, I guess that's the wrong word for it, but you cannot get a, a bomb. You can't get a nuclear bomb unless it's a, at a very high purity. So, Right now, the Iranians are known to be enriching uranium to a point of, um, I think it's about 20% enrichment. And 20% is what you need for a nuclear reactor. A nuclear reactor, basically you take the uranium and you stick it, into, you stick it under water. And that creates steam because it's so hot and you, know, you end up with this reaction and it boils the water and it turns a turbine and that gives you electricity. That's basically how a nuclear reactor works. So, 20% is not a very dangerous level. So, the, um, the uranium that you find in uh, a nuclear reactor itself, um, out of a standard, you know, out of a standard nuclear fuel reactor, a, a safe one, which is what Iran technically has, um, is only about 20%. And fuel inside a reactor eventually does expire if it's a... Um, sort of like what they call a light water nuclear reactor. Now, the North Koreans have a little reactor that's a heavy water nuclear reactor that the Russians built for them. And theirs is highly radioactive. And they're, um, they're able to actually use their reactor to build um, a nuclear bomb because the rods that hold the nuclear sample down into the, in the reactor um, get exposed to um, enough radiation that they are pure enough to then use as a bomb. But um, Iran doesn't have this capability. So Iran um, is trying to enrich their own uranium. They get the uranium and they put it in, the, the, they gasify it, they put it in the centrifuges, um, and, they, and they try to get um, higher purity. Now, They have built a heavy water plant in their reactor. Now, there's no good reason to build a heavy water plant unless you intend to make a nuclear weapon. There's virtually no other reason. The Iranians believe that you can drink the heavy water. 
um, which uh, you know is ridiculous, and and that it cures things. That's what they're going with is the reason they have this. Um, the heavy water nuclear, um, the heavy water basically helps with um, uh, enriching the, the the uranium into the fusion process and making plutonium and things like this, um, it, which is designed specifically for making a nuclear bomb. Um, but right now, the uh, Iranians are working on um, enriching uranium to a higher level, under the under the um, the guise of uh, like around forty percent or so, um, in order to make uh, medical isotopes. Medical isotopes are these things that they use in radiation therapy uh, for medical reasons, and they're actually um, fairly hard to get and sort of expensive. And so it, it is not actually that unusual for a nuclear-enabled country to want to have them. For instance, Canada has a nuclear power plant that is deemed to be not so safe. It's not dangerous, but the you know Canada's very green, and their population doesn't really like the idea of them using this reactor. But the actual government um, at one point said, well, um, we're going to let it uh, run anyway because this reactor is very important for making medical isotopes. And, the, you know, Canada didn't want to be in the United States pocket in this, in this case in order to get their own um, uh, isotopes. So, uh, you know, they basically started up their own dangerous reactor and uh, kept it going in order to, um, to get this stuff. So, you know, if you, if you think of Canada doing it, other countries like Iran or or um, Russia or other places also um, like having this market for medical isotopes because there's a lot of countries out there that you know um, would like to have radiation therapy but do not have nuclear reactors and so therefore they cannot generate their own medical isotopes and they have to purchase them so it's something that um, uh, is um, uh, difficult to um, move in and out of countries because it's radioactive and um, it's something that um, yet is uh, necessary so our countries want them so it's a good argument that the iranians have that they want medical isotopes but uh, again they have a um a heavy water plant and so it's very likely that they are going to um continue to try and to to make a nuclear weapon um they're not really at that 40 percent mark yet uh, in purity they're working on it um and you know even if you have um uh say 10 percent um, you obviously have the workings for what they call a dirty bomb. Um, the dirty bomb is basically where they blast a bunch of nuclear radiation all over an area and turn it into a wasteland. A dirty bomb isn't a very effective weapon. I don't know any country, maybe some terrorists would want a dirty bomb, but um, it's not very effective because it is... Um, uh, if you get exposed to that kind of radiation, unless it's very highly radioactive, which it wouldn't be, you know, because then they'd have a nuclear bomb, so it would be like a lower uh, radiation capacity. Um, basically, you're if you're exposed to it, you're not going to die today, you're not going to die tomorrow. I mean, basically what's going to happen is, is about, you know, uh, 50 years old or something, you're going to end up with thyroid cancer, and that's going to kill you. And, uh, you know, if you're fighting a war... Um, giving a bunch of people thyroid cancer that they're going to get in about 30 years from now is not really the way to like win a war. I mean, it's just stupid. Maybe you get the last laugh. Ha ha! You know, I gotcha! But, um, you know, you're going to lose the freaking war. So this is not a very uh, convincing weapon in any case. I mean, there's talk, well, they could launch one at um, Israel and, and contaminate all of Israel. And so I don't think that they're going to do that because, you know, the thing is, is that these, these religious areas that Israel is, you know, occupying is land that these, um, uh, um, 
other countries and the Palestinian people want that land. I mean, that's their land. They want it. So irradiating the land doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, then nobody gets the land and it's just a wasteland and nobody can go there. Um, so that's not likely to take place. Um, but, you know, uh, Iran making a nuclear missile is or bomb is not um, the fur- you know, furthest stretch of the imagination. But the expertise necessary to go from, say, 40% to 95% um, to make a nuclear-capable um, uh, sample is uh, very difficult and very time-consuming and something that the Iranians are probably not close to achieving. Places that have a heavy water nuclear facility um, that may have been India or Pakistan, because they were both able to build the bombs rapidly, um, are not the same as a place like Iran that is trying to do it on their own with centrifuges. There's a big difference there. It's not easy to to build that kind of a sample up and, and make themselves a bomb. But, at the same time, with enough time and enough people and enough blackmail and everything else that goes on with um, getting the right information over about how to do it and paying off the right people and you have enough spies out there and everything, eventually they'll crack that nut. Um, We did it. We spent an enormous amount of time doing it. We figured it out. Other countries have figured it out. Russia certainly figured it out. Um, But, uh, you know, it is um, something that Iraq... Uh, Saddam Hussein worked on for a long time um, with, uh, you know, um, nobody basically monitoring what he was up to, and, uh, you know, except for the Israelis, and, uh, you know, not able to get it, not able to get it done. And so it's, um, it's, it's very tricky. It's not something that you can just get some radioactive stuff, put it into a clump, um, stick it in a rocket, and shoot it at somebody, and it's going to blow up. Uh, even once you have a nuclear sample, um, you have to basically uh, build a very um, intricate explosive um, casing around your bomb in order for it to be uh, to, to gain fusion and and blow up with a nuclear explosion. And even that is not actually easy to do. Um, you need shaped charges and um, specific electronics that only you can get through. Um, you know, certain countries and things like that that would be able to trade that to you and and, um, uh, and hopefully they work. And that, hopefully they work, is the biggest question about building any kind of nuclear bomb because you don't really have a bomb until you've tested your bomb. Until you can prove to the international community that you actually have tested a nuclear bomb, you do not have a bomb. That's like what the North Koreans did. The North Koreans took their um, supposed nuclear bomb, put it into a cave, and detonated it. And uh, that detonation was registered. And the international community actually flew planes through the air over North Korea and sampled the air. And they determined that while they did um, detonate a nuclear um, device, it was largely... um, uh, a, a dud, not not very effective. Uh, then the North Koreans actually detonated a second um, bomb, and that one was a little bit of a greater strength. But then it was um, theorized that uh, they had run out of um, enough fissionable material at that time to um, 
detonate an, another explosion because they only have so much. They have a little reactor and it doesn't, you know, um, create enough fuel to build like tons of bombs. So um, that is something where you know they have they have the they have this nuclear capability, but it's not very good. And that's something that the international community pays attention to. And so if you just come out and say you have a nuclear bomb, nobody believes you. You actually have to test it, and you need to test it for your own scientists so your scientists know that what they actually have actually works. And if you're the leader and you ever intend to use that bomb, you also need to know it works. The only people that potentially have a nuclear bomb and have never tested it, supposedly, is the Israelis. Um, whether they tested that um, in another country... Um, as a domestic test, uh, but it was their own nuclear radiation, is unknown. I mean, we would probably, our government would probably know that um, because, you know, we're allies with them and maybe we were the ones that let them do that. But um, for what we know, um, they've never tested. As well as uh, South Africa had a nuclear program um, during the, uh, the, um, the apartheid reign and they had... Um, created uh, shotgun-style nuclear bombs, and there's a rumor that they actually uh, test-fired one with the help of the Israelis over the, uh, um, uh, near, near the Arctic Circle, um, and um, that's uh, disputed, um, but a satellite supposedly picked it up, but many people don't believe that that actually took place, um, but yeah, the um, South, uh, South Africans uh, d actually um, dismantled their nuclear capability, however, they still actually have the um, nuclear stockpile so that they um, could potentially uh, use those bombs and, um, by putting them back together again. Uh, that's something that they actually have the capability of doing, but today they do not have, and I think they're the only country who has ever actually given up nuclear weapons. <coughs> but uh, anyway, uh, Iran uh, busy trying to um, get that uh, a nuclear bomb, but to reassure you, when the news comes on and says, "Oh, they've you know they're working and they've got nuclear this and that and everything," you basically should um, gain a little bit of skepticism about it because they've never tested a weapon, and uh, they're probably not very close at the moment to getting the purity necessary to um, reach uh, ninety-five percent, um, which is what you need to basically create a um, fully functional nuclear weapon. Um, this is another reason why the Russians and the Chinese and things sort of like frown on the idea of all these sanctions and everything because they're like saying, you know, look, they're not they're not that close. Um, they're doing you know they're doing peacetime type stuff with nuclear research. They're not that close. And we're sitting there going, well, once they get that close, then what are we going to do? Because then it's going to be too late. And so you know, both of those arguments are pretty good. Um, but the Iranians themselves are. Um, at the moment, I, I would say n not that close. And there's a lot of experts that always come on the end and go, well, they're within a year and everything. <clears throat> I think like two years ago they said they were within two years. So, gee, they should have one by now. But it's actually a lot more difficult than a lot of these experts think. And to get that information is a lot more difficult than um, uh, people think. Because just because other countries were able to do it rapidly, this is why people get this wrong. Other countries were able to do it rapidly, like North Korea, because they had a heavy water nuclear power plant. Um, Iran does not have that. Iran is trying to enrich their own uranium um, from uranium-239, and that is what's causing them to have uh, the struggles that they're having. Um, so, you know, again, eventually they'll probably figure out how to do it, and we need to, um, to deal with that problem uh, because, you know, um, it, it, uh, it creates a, 
you know, whether they use nuclear bombs and weapons um, uh, for defense only, or if they have no intention of ever using them, or, or whatever they do, the problem, I think, with Iran is that their government is very um, separate. Uh, it's very, uh, there's different pieces of it. You know, you have uh, the, the religious part of it, you have the, the domestic part of it, and you have the military part of it. And the um, ability of the, those nuclear materials to um, get screwed up somewhere in the works between those three um, parties and end up in the hands of terrorists is uh, fairly high. And that's the real danger, I think, more than anything else. Yes, Israel could get nuked, um, but, you know, if Iran were to nuke them, then their whole country would just get turned into a parking lot. And I don't think that's something that would be lost to them. And, you know, there, there'd be no winner there. You know, there, there, that's the problem. But um, if a nuclear, um, uh, you know, is in Iran's hands and they become a nuclear country, then it doesn't take long for the Saudis to become nuclear and um, uh, nuclear materials to be moved around between countries. And uh, you, be, you, you really destabilize the region, and that's what they mean by that. And, uh, you know, then you have a country like Hezbollah, who, who would have a nuclear bomb and, and, and they might be crazy enough to use it and, you know, that you know, becomes a, a an end of the world scenario over there um, all that sand becomes glass basically, you know, big big piece of glass over there covering all the oil in the world so, you know, we're trying to steer them away from <clears throat> from doing that and um, it didn't work with the North Koreans, you know, the North Koreans ended up building their nuclear bomb and they have their nuclear bomb now and, um you know, it's just one more thing that we have a problem with with them. Uh, and so, you know, will it be uh, successful with the Iran? Who knows? We don't know. All right, well, that's it for the show. Um, at least I got that extra one out of the way. Uh, I still never get to the insurance GPS localization or the immigration reform, but uh, we'll talk about that on a future show. I'll try to do one next week, and you know, if I get some time, and um, we'll put it all together there for you. But, yeah, again, if you want to write into the show, you want to talk about any things I've talked about, or you want to talk about future topics for the show and everything, or just tell me I'm full of shit, which is fine, um, just write into kbaird at vgn.us. That's kbaird at vgn.us. I'll read your email on the air and comment on it. And or if you want to come on the show and um, talk about any of these topics or any other topics that you want to um, uh, touch on, that would be terrific. Uh, you can also send an email there, and uh, we'll talk about it, and we'll set up a date time for you to get on the show, and uh, we'll do an old blast together. All right. Everybody, that's it. I don't have an outro for the old blast. Thanks for listening, and peace.